When you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, shoot that, shoot that! And even, checkout's not until four, so. Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Support for this episode comes from Viator. Experiences are what people love the most about travel. That's why Viator has over 300,000 bookable experiences, so there's always something for everyone. They offer everything from simple tours to extreme adventures. Plus, Viator's travel experiences have millions of real traveler reviews, so you have the information you need to book the best activities for your trip. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. One app, over 300,000 travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. Hello, and welcome to the Long Forum Podcast. I'm your co-host, Aaron Lammer, here with Evan Ratliff. Hey, Aaron. Max is on a well-deserved vacation. So it's just the two of us. What have you got for us? We know how to run this show. We've been doing this a long time. I'm sure I'm sure that can't be too complicated. Uh, and immediately my mind is blank. Even though this interview <laughs> is by me, it's with Andrea Elliott, who is the author of Invisible Child. Longtime New York Times readers may remember a series of features she did on a young girl in New York City who was living in a shelter. Uh, her name is Dasani. The book follows her, I want to say for about eight years, maybe even longer than that, actually. Mm. It's one of the most monumental single reporting projects, I think, of anyone we've had on this show. She basically spent the majority of her professional time for a period of years immersed in Dasani and her family's life. It's a kind of reporting that she specializes in. Actually, our, our editor asked me to note, we talk about this book, we talk about the features that led to this book, and we talk about a series of profiles of a imam in Brooklyn that she wrote that won the Pulitzer Prize, sometimes fluidly without actually saying which one of those things we're talking about. So I was interested in her whole experience in immersive journalism, and uh, we, we kind of leapt around a little bit uh, uh, linearly with that. Oh, I'm so happy that you had her on. It's one of those where it's fortunate that we failed to get her after the original series came out, because now you have this magisterial book to dig into and, and get the whole history of her reporting. So I'm very excited to hear this myself. Yeah, there's kind of an interesting thing that happens. We talked about this where the article came out and made a major splash. It was one of the most talked about articles. All of the mayors of New York had various reactions. I'm going to fix this. I'm going to do this or that. And then Andrea continued following her for many years after that. So the reporting did sort of change fate and destiny in a way, but there's also an element to like how much can your 
fate and destiny be changed by something like this? And where do you go after you become uh, this viral kid uh, who was the subject of a New York Times profile? In her case, she ended up going to this uh, school in Pennsylvania, which may or may not have come out of the original reporting. Yeah. I won't give it away. I, I, uh, apologies if there are any spoilers in this interview. If you are particularly concerned about spoilers, uh, maybe read the book first. <laughs> Our podcast, The Long Form Podcast, is produced in partnership with Vox. We thank them. And now here's Aaron with Andrea Elliott. Welcome uh, to the Long Form Podcast, Andrea Elliott. Hi, Aaron. Thanks for having me. You have a new book out. It's called Invisible Child, Poverty, Survival, and Hope in an American City. I think a lot of people listening to this show probably are familiar with the multi-part New York Times series that you came out with sort of in the middle of this book. Would that be accurate? The article comes out like midway through the book narrative. Yeah, it comes out probably in the first third of the book. So a lot has happened since that article came out. And I know that probably a lot of discussions of this book focus on issues of poverty and policy. What I would really like to talk to you about this book is the practical reporting elements of putting together a project of this size, which is how many years of your life were you working on this? So... I met Dasani when she was 11 in 2012 and continued to follow her pretty much nonstop for the next eight years, full-time reporting. And then the continued to, and as I was writing it, things kept happening. I actually wrote the end of the book three different times and all three endings <laughs> are in the book. It's just the two of them and particular chapters. So it ends in 2021. So nearly a decade. Can I ask you a question? This probably applies both to an editor at a newspaper and to a editor at a publishing house, which is when you have a project like this that has no specific finite ending, how does the ending come into play? And at what point does the editor say like enough, there will be always one more thing that one more thing cannot go in this article or book? <laughs> I mean... You're speaking to the great tension between editors and writers. And I think if I'm really good at one thing, it's exhausting my editor's last bit of patience, <laughs> whoever the editor has been through the course of my career. And I've been extraordinarily lucky to work with some of the best, Christine Kay, Matt Purdy, and then with this book, Kate Medina, who's wonderful. I think of the ending maybe a little bit in the same way that I think of the beginning, which is as you're reporting, the right way in, in terms of writing, will will strike you, will will come to you. It's like, okay, wait, this is, this is the opening. And I think maybe the answer is to not overthink the ending, and it does present itself. And when the actual ending revealed itself, I knew it. I could see it that day, and I felt it in my gut. But of course, I'd done that twice before, and so I don't know that one's gut is the, definitely not the final say, but it's certainly a good indicator. And it's always been my best friend in my reporting. Thinking about that issue of your gut, real life, particularly real life 
in the way it's depicted in this book, the minutiae, the day-to-day struggles of living for this character doesn't necessarily fit into a traditional three-act structure, beginning, middle, and end. When you were working on the book, were you thinking about how this would come together as a narrative and entertaining a reader? How do you match those two things up uh, in, you know, 500 pages? (laughs) I mean, it's interesting looking at this in hindsight versus remembering how I was feeling in (laughs) in the midst of it, which are two very, very different things. I think with a project like this and with other projects that were much smaller in scale, but still quite ambitious or that involved deep immersion, I kind of go in blindly. I feel uh, very afraid in the beginning because you don't know what's going to happen. And of course, there's this great tension between simply showing up and observing as an outsider, a story that is not your own and learning and really not having an agenda. And then also knowing that at some point you will need to step back and shape that into a narrative that hopefully keeps the reader on the page, which does require structure of some kind, whether it's beginning, middle and end, or whether in the case of this book, it's seven parts. And so at the very, very beginning, when I set off to learn about Dasani's life as a reporter for the New York Times, I remember feeling that trepidation, like, well, what if nothing happens? About six months into that project, I remember my then editor and I, Christine Kay, almost just stunned at that early fear. Because in retrospect, it's like things wouldn't stop happening. It was the opposite. I was entering lives of trauma. And if anything, it was exhausting to keep up with everything that happened. And so it really wasn't going to be about the worry of, you know, were there enough plot points so much as really attending to the meaning of these major things that happened and trying to figure out how to choose the events that were most important to Dasani and to telling her story. What is your note-taking and capturing methodology like in a situation like this where you're spending hundreds and hundreds of hours with a person, with their family. There's a lot of pretty literal dialogue in the book. Yeah. So what I would say first and foremost is I would describe it, (laughs) I, I guess I would describe it as obsessive. I don't trust my own memory. And so I work with a lot of tools. I take traditional notes like any reporter and I rely also a lot on video and on audio. And with audio, what I do is I use something called LiveScribe pen, which is a pen that writes like a regular pen, but also records at the same time. Actually, Dasani used to refer to it as my spy pen. (laughs) And she would hold it in front of her face and use it like a microphone as if like kind of just to announce to everyone around us that it was actually a a pen that was recording, not just a regular pen. She was so funny about it. But everyone knew this was one of my tools and it was always running. And um, I have, I guess, about 127 hours of audio logged over the course of these years and dozens of hours of video. And I think that was, for me, how I could feel that I was capturing dialogue 
accurately because I didn't want to take liberties with that, of course. I also felt that it calmed me down in the moment as I was trying to observe so many things going on at once to know that I had these sort of backup forms of information capturing going on. And so when it came time to reconstruct the scene I had witnessed, I could rely on visuals and audio and my own notes. And then a fourth thing that I did, which was to put into a notebook that I called my train notes. This was on the train home. There was a 45-minute ride between my life and Dasani's life for many of these years. And I would just put into that notebook everything that I was thinking, feeling, observing. And some of the things I wrote down wound up in the book exactly as I had written them on the train, (laughs) unchanged. Because I think when you are observing something in the moment, it's almost never as good a time as right then to write it down. So it's a lot of stuff to organize And so one thing that I learned to do really early on was to keep a timeline. And every time something happened, I would plug it into this timeline. And it was color-coded, and it spans two centuries now. And I put it up on the wall at the times. I actually convinced them to give me an office in the beginning when I was writing the series. And people were cracking jokes about how I reminded them of Carrie in Homeland and I hadn't seen Homeland and I just thought, oh, I'm sure that's just a sweet comparison. And then I finally watched Homeland and I realized <laughs> that they were comparing me to somebody who is in the midst of like a just a huge manic episode. So I think though that it's crazier not to do that. I think you have to put it somewhere. Otherwise you're carrying it around. When you started to write based on some of these um, tools and techniques, whether it's the direct transcripts from the live scribe or it's the timeline, what was surprising to you in revisiting these things that maybe did not connect with your memories of them or or cause you to reevaluate the story based on that sort of a, a window into it? I think there's so many moments of revelation in a project like this. So there's when you're there in real time and everything you're thinking and feeling, then there's the kind of transcribing process, whatever that is. However, that information shapes into like your files and timeline and outline or whatever it is that charts the way to writing it. And then there's the writing. And I think sometimes in the writing, actually almost always new questions would arise because the writing always shows me what I don't know as I'm writing it. I mean, Desani got so tired of me calling her up and saying, remind me again, what were you thinking in that moment? You know, Because <laughs> I want to get in her head so much. And I, I learned to do that in real time as much as possible because it's very hard to remember what you were thinking in a given moment. But I think that's part of what's so exciting about this kind of project is that it never ceases, at least for me, to be revelatory. And I also like read stuff out loud. I find that that's really helpful. And to anybody who's in my life, it drives them crazy, but I <laughs> tend to to read things. I read passages to the family at times, different people who are in the book. I'd be on the phone with them saying, this is how I've written this. Listen to it and tell me what you think. So there was a lot of back and forth in terms of just how I shaped it and my tone and just trying to get it to feel as fully realized as possible. 
but yeah, you you raise a really good question, which is how what are the ways in which the material causes the writer to rethink the actual thing that's happened that the writer witnessed, <laughs> and I think one way that that happens is in the research. So this is the most human story I've ever reported in the sense that it was so much about immersion and being in this family's life and seeing things happen. But it was also very reliant on records. I wound up with more than 14,000 records detailing the family's experience with agencies, with city agencies, looking at uh, various systems. And it was the connecting of what the records said to the memories of the people in the book or the things I even witnessed that also was very revelatory and interesting process. Because to be poor is to be surveilled. It means that there is a long record trail because you are ultimately going to be in various systems that keep tabs on you. And so I could figure out on any given day of, for example, Dasani's grandmother's life, where she was based on all sorts of records I gathered, even though she had passed away. And I could see, for example, the connection between these 50,000 feet above the ground moments, such as Clinton's Welfare Reform Act, and the repercussions of that in Joni's life when she needed to go back to work. And this prompted her to get clean and sober and make major changes in her life. So anyway, it, it was a constant excavation of things that I guess in the pursuit of, of a story that was both going to feel very, very intimate and at the same time, hopefully authoritative in the way that it was rooted in facts and history. You're at a place you just discovered. And being an American Express Platinum card member with global dining access by Resi helped you score tickets to quite the dining experience. Okay, chef. You're looking at something you've never seen before, much less tasted. After your first bite, you say nothing because you're speechless. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your dining experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. In two days, only on Disney+. Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Does anyone here know the lyrics? Taylor Swift, the Eras Tour, Taylor's version. With four additional acoustic songs. Streaming March 14th, only on Disney+. When I think about the overall trajectory of, of this project, the biggest single decision seems like who you choose to write about. You did a previous series about an, a mom in Brooklyn, yes, for which I, I believe you won a Pulitzer Prize. And I just reread that series, and my first impression was similar. I was like, wow, she really picked the right imam in Brooklyn <laughs> for this Serious. This could have been someone that was not interesting to me, but this person has a lot of really interesting sort of human details about them. 
how do you think about that? Do you consider multiple subjects before zeroing in on one? You know, I think often of Sheikh Rida Shatta, the imam, in relation to Dasani, they couldn't be more different. He is a 37-year-old Egyptian scholar of Islam who landed in the United States right after 9-11. We spoke through a translator. He didn't go to the movies. He wore a long robe. I mean, Dasani is a creature of the city. She's a member of a different generation. She speaks a different language. And yet, I think there's so much that's similar about them. First and foremost, they were people who made me laugh almost immediately. Mm. And I think people who can be humorous about themselves show a creativity of thought that is very enticing when you as a writer are looking for a way into understanding something that's complex. So they were both people who wanted to narrate their own experiences And these were experiences that were very poorly understood by the broader community around them. So their own community knew their experience, but not, for example, the readers of the New York Times, many of them. And so they were survivors of forces beyond their control. In the case of the imam, what it was like to be Muslim in a post 9-11 America. And for Dasani, what it was like to be growing up poor in the richest city in the world trapped in systems that very much connect her to her ancestors and to America's history of slavery going forward into today's systems that are deeply divided and very representative of systemic racism. And so I think with both of these cases, though, I sort of feel like they chose me (laughs) more than I chose them. And what I mean by that is, well, literally with the case of the imam, no other imam would talk to me. (laughs) This was the one guy. (laughs) I mean, in a sense, also though I wore him down because I kept coming back and I I did the same with Dasani's family. And so I think if I do something well as as a reporter, it is to be extremely stubborn to the point of annoying and (laughs) hopefully people just get tired of saying no. Right. But Dasani was immediately receptive to me, but the, the, the challenge there was of course, understandably was with her parents and gaining their, their trust. But in both cases, I knew that I wanted to engage with someone who could bring me in to this other world and who kind of electrified me. And I think they were both just people who did that. What were the negotiations with her parents uh, like for the access you had? And and how did that relationship evolve over time? So her parents are avid readers. They are both self-taught. Chanel, her mother and Supreme, the person she regards as her father, who's her stepfather who raised her, both dropped out of high school. Supreme got his GED in prison. They wanted to read my work. And with anyone I write about, I do offer that to them. I brought Mm. all of my stories to them. And I even offered to connect them to people I'd written about just to say, you know, call these people, ask them if you think I was fair. They didn't really want to do that, but they had a lot of questions about my process. More than anything, though, I think their initial question was, why do you want to tell our story and what is your agenda? And this is where we 
bonded early on because I think we had a kind of shared enemy, which was poverty. I wanted to expose the life of poor people in today's New York City, specifically through a child, focused on this shelter that they were living in, a city-run shelter called Auburn Family Residence, which was a scandal in terms of how it was mismanaged and the horrible conditions that it represented. And they hated the shelter. And so that gave us a thing to bond over, (laughs) a kind of shared purpose in a sense. And I equipped them with reporting tools, gave them cell phones to use to communicate with me, video cameras, because I didn't have access to the shelter. I couldn't get in. It was closed to the public. And for the first year of my reporting, the photographer Ruth Fremson and I stayed undercover because we were certain that if we showed ourselves to the city that they would make the story go away. So ultimately, Ruth and I snuck in through the back through a fire escape, set off alarms and ran past four sets of security guards to get into the room, um, went undetected and got access. But for the first months, I was really reliant on the family to help me in this shared goal of exposing the horrible conditions of this place. And so those are the things that I think early on helped. But what I would also say is that as a reporter, I can talk my best game and yet nothing matters more than the act of showing up and the relationship that develops outside of language, which is a relationship of walking the streets of Chanel looking at my face as someone tells a joke and seeing how I respond. And I found that with the imam as well, that the more time in general I spend with people I'm writing about, the better chance I have of going deep because they come to see in me the things that they are curious about just by being around me, right? Another thing I would say is I don't see reporting as a one-way street. I think I did in my my early years at the Miami Herald. I spent covering night cops and then courts and doing a lot of street reporting. And I believe that's very much where I learned all of the things that I really still hold dear about reporting and the process of reporting. But it, it was also a time when I hewed to more sort of traditional rules around journalism that I'm the reporter, I wear the hat of asking questions, you are the subject, you wear the hat of answering questions. And so my job is to to collect information and then go back and write the story. And those roles are, are finite and clear. And I've come to a very different understanding of what my role should be and how best to do this kind of reporting. I, I think that People need to know as much as they can about you. And yes, there are boundaries, but they're somewhat fluid and they're very, very important boundaries to protect. And at the same time, even just the fact of the boundaries is something to talk about with the people you're writing about. Isn't it weird that this is my job to be reporting on your life when we can laugh and we can break bread together? And I spent all these hours with you and you know about my kids And what do you think of that? And this was a constant source of conversation for the parents and I, and for even with Dasani. So just keeping that fact on the table and keeping it as central to the conversation that I'm human, I'm going to respond in human ways. I'm going to feel big things. 
you're going to see in my eyes that I care. And at the same time, I'm also here to write a book, not just to um, be with you. And those two facts, I learned to just allow to coexist within me, but it was not easy. (laughs) When you break the fourth wall in that way and start to discuss how bizarre it is almost that you're just spending all your time with these people to write a book about them. What do you think about the, for lack of a better word, the butterfly effect that is going on where Mm -hmm. I'm thinking particularly in regards to Dasani's family's interactions with social service agencies and homeless agencies where there are these, you know, long waits to get in, to meet with various people, to get permission for various things or to get benefits approved. And they're coming in with this New York Times reporter with a rolling live scribe pen. Do you think that your presence influences what happens in those situations? Well, I have a number of reactions to that. One is, of course, we have an impact just by being there. There's no question how to measure that impact is more the question. And Mm. putting that question aside for a moment, what I would say is I didn't show up as the New York Times reporter with the rolling live scribe pen. I, I think I was seen so much of the time as this odd appendage, as this (laughs) person in jeans and a, my floppy hat and my pen wasn't known as a recorder to anyone other other than the family. And so at times people on the street thought, they thought different things about me. I just spent so much time with the family that the people closest to them got used to me. And the people who didn't know them, the people in the welfare office and other places had no idea who I was because I didn't ask permission. I didn't think I'd get permission. The best example of this was when I spent almost, I would say, 12 hours in the DHS intake office. This is Department of Homeless Services intake for families in the Bronx. And I snuck in with the family. I just went through the security with them and nobody stopped me. I would never misrepresent who I am, but if they don't ask, I don't have to tell. And this was, of course, the best way to get a sense of what was going on. And we went from floor to floor. It was exhausting. The food was terrible. At one point, about 10 hours in, both Chanel and I fell asleep and Dasani took a photograph of us. (laughs) And then every so often she uses it to like make fun of us. This is not a flattering photograph. (laughs) We're both just like, (laughs) looked like we're dying basically. I thought it was funny though, because I'm usually the one, you know, taking photographs. But um, yes, I did provoke curiosity at times. I think so much of what the book shows in terms of these systems is what I got through the records and not because I showed up and said, oh, I'm with it. You know, first of all, it was at the times for the the material from the series might be less than 10% of the book. So for much of the time, I was actually just writing a book and not there as a New York Times. But even if I said that, people didn't really know what to make of it. And so much of this world of systems around poverty is carried out by people on the ground in sort of mid-level positions who really don't care. They have too much going on to bother with 
this person who's writing a book. I was there usually because there was a crisis happening. And so that's what the focus was on, was how to put the food stamps back on, how to deal with a kid who suddenly was in secure detention because he was attacking someone on the street. You know, there were just constant crises in this family that that were filling the room and grabbing everyone's attention. Uh, you referred to a uh, period of your life where you were doing, I think you described it as more traditional reporting. What was your trajectory as a journalist like? How, how, how did you get into this stuff? You know, I always wanted to do this from, I joined this high school paper. So I was very tunnel vision about it from the time I was an early teen. What I love most is long form narrative nonfiction. And so I really, even in my earliest days at the Miami Herald working the night shift, had that in my mind. And the way I did it was I kind of forced it on my various editors by by doing stories on my own time, because I didn't think they would give me, I mean, who? why give this rookie an enterprise assignment? There's no point. This was an amazing place to get a first job right out of journalism school in Miami Herald. I mean, it was the place that made Edna Buchanan and so many, so many great reporters and writers. And so I was a low priority, but I found ways to pitch big stories when I got someone's attention and then say, I've, I've already reported half of it. <laughs> Here you go. I can actually turn it in by next week. And who's going to say no? There's no, They have nothing to lose. And so that's sort of how I got my foot in early. And then three and a half years after joining the Miami Herald, I left to go to the New York Times. Again, assigned to the Bronx. I was covering the night GA assignment on Sundays when I pitched to them the beat that led me into the mosque where I finally was able to immerse for the first long stretch. And I think that it was just about asking them to give me a chance and having done enough medium-sized stories that they saw that it was worth a gamble. And then I was really scared (laughs) going into that one, but it came out okay. (laughs) And then after that happened, I think it helped open a lot of doors in the newsroom in terms of continuing to do that kind of work. I mean, that's really after 2007 was all I did. You said you were really scared in that situation. What was scary and, and how did you deal with that fear? What was scary was what's still scary, which is, you don't know what's going to happen. Is this going to be something that my boss feels was worth the investment? Even though really for me, that is what journalism is all about, is going in not knowing. But what was also additionally scary at that time, which maybe is not as scary now, was the fact that I hadn't done it before (laughs) and knowing fully well that this would be a test. It would be a test. And I remember writing the sort of lead graphs of the first story of the Imam series several times and doing it in different ways and knowing that I was not, not getting there. It wasn't the right way in. It was this very complicated scene that dealt with Islamic law in a negotiation between the Imam and some of the people at his mosque. And I remember my editor at the time, Joe Sexton, called me up and he said, Andrea, you're trying too hard. 
because he was such a good listener. I would come back, and this was many months in, right? I'd come back at least once a week with some phenomenal story <laughs> to share of something I just witnessed. And he would listen and listen and listen. And so by the time I was writing, he knew what I had. And he said, what you have is so, is so new, is so revelatory that you just have to trust in that. And really, he said this almost as a joke. He's like, you know, you could just describe the mosque from the outside and that would be enough. It was a brilliant example of editing where he's like, let me just calm you down <laughs> so that you can clear the detritus from your brain and write the story that is begging to be written, that's shining beneath the surface. You can't see it yet because you're so cluttered still with all your reporting. And I think there's a real lesson to be drawn from that in that you have to zoom in, like think of a camera, so much when you're reporting. But the act of writing requires zooming out. It requires seeing from the distance, the, the thing that you've just been so immersed in. And those are contrary actions, right? I wasn't able to zoom out in the beginning with the Imam series. I wrote this very complicated lead. And when my editor said it could be as simple as describing the mosque, I kind of scoffed because I was still new enough to this that I didn't see the wisdom in what he was saying. But it stuck with me. And over the next few days, I decided to work with that as a narrative device. What does this building mean to the reader who doesn't know what's going on inside? How does the reader see this building from the outside? Who's going to take the reader into that building to see the world that they don't otherwise know? And it was the imam. And how does this happen? It's by seeing him in a way that probably many readers could recognize as an image that they have in their minds, as this outsider, as a man wearing a long robe, walking through the street, looking like he belongs to this very different world, which he does. And then he walks into the mosque, but you walk in with him. And that's how I rewrote the lead that stayed as the final lead. The Imam begins his trek before dawn, his long robe billowing like a ghost through empty streets. In this dark, quiet hour, his thoughts sometimes drift back to the Egyptian farming village where he was born. Yep, that's it. And I remember Joe calling me up as soon as he read it. I was actually at Trader Joe's. <laughs> he said, I don't know where you are right now, but I just want to say that this is fucking great. <laughs> and I don't know where it's going to go, but I think... It's like one of the best things I've read in a long time or something. And I just remember jumping up and down. It was a, it was a seminal moment. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. 
When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. There's a point in, in the book, uh, I'll apologize in advance if I mangle what you said, but I think this is maybe in the afterword, I want to say. I believe that you say that originally uh, you were going to write about Dasani's family and that in a conversation with an editor, you sort of decided to focus uh, primarily on Dasani. And part of the logic was if this story is about her parents, there's going to be an impulse to blame them for their own situation, but no one is going to blame an 11 year old for their own situation, a homeless 11 year old. When you're conceiving of these stories, how much are you thinking about like how the audience is going to react that way? And that sort of like sequence of how people are going to process a story with their own biases and presumptions about the people you're writing about? I think we often enter into a story carrying those biases, whether we're aware of it or not, like the sound of those ideas in our heads. There are so many preconceptions that people have about the poor, and these are popular ideas, and so they're going to be echoing in some form. And I think, if anything, I wanted to unburden myself of that by focusing on the kids. But yeah, the original conversation with my editors was, before I met Dasani actually, was just about where the focus should be. And their concern was around, as you put it, this sort of political noise that surrounds poverty stories that assigns blame to the adults. And the debate around whose fault it is. Is it the fault of the person? Is it the fault of the system? And my kind of counter argument to that was to say, look, I want as wide an audience as I can get for this story. And no matter where you land on the political spectrum, you can't argue with the fact that there are more than 16 million children growing up in poverty in America. And the stakes are huge. And no one could argue that it's their fault, their kids. So if I just focus on the kids, I will be able to explore these things. I want to say less complicated, but it's not less complicated, but in a way that allows for less noise in the reaction potentially that, you know, maybe even unifies people of different backgrounds around the story of this one child. That's how I saw it in the very beginning. All these years later, I see it really differently. And that's because I came to know the adults so well. And what I saw in them was that they and we collectively are all former children and childhoods live inside us and they shape who we are. And so to know Dasani is to know the childhoods that came before her in the form of her parents and her grandparents and her great-grandparents. And those are all very, very important stories, but you don't see those former childhoods when you're blaming the adult. It's a lot easier to 
take a hard stance with an adult than it is with a child. Mm. So you covered Islamic communities in the wake of 9-11. And thinking on uh, to, to what we were talking about, about the biases that people bring in and the lack of understanding that a reader may have about a community that's quite different than the one they live in. Like, what did you learn over that period about immersing a reader in a community like these Islamic communities in Brooklyn that are pretty detached from um, the rest of what's going on in the city and people may know almost nothing about going into a story? I think I found with Muslim communities, very much what I found with the homeless population in New York City and other worlds that I've ventured into as a reporter that seems so different, which is that the most surprising thing to readers is how much they share in common with someone they thought was so different. That the universal bonds between people are greater than the things that you would think would separate them. I'm always paying attention to what surprises me because I feel that often that's what's going to surprise other people. But what I also find is I'll write things that don't surprise me that are shocking or (laughs) revelatory to other people. So we can't use our own personal lens as a guide. We have to be just aware of it as much as possible, I think, and see it as both a guide and potentially something to navigate around. You know, fiction writers are often told, write what you know, early Mm. fiction writers, you know, young fiction writers. I think nonfiction writers have to be there enough to write it as if they know it. And they'll never fully know it as an outsider, but it does require showing up. Um, Again, you know, another thing we often hear is show, don't tell. Well, you need to be there to show it. (laughs) And so I am very much a reporter's reporter. I really, really love reporting. Uh, I find it thrilling. Um, It can be very dull at times, especially when you're investing so much time because you have to be prepared for that, right? To just sit around. I remember sitting around in the mosque in Brooklyn for hours and (laughs) just feeling the weight of the passage of time and wondering where was this going? But then these remarkable things would happen. And if you're not there, you don't see them. So the more time you spend, the greater your chances are of seeing a fuller portrait of what's happening. Can we talk about the personal economics of investing this much time in a story? Like when you're doing this at a book level, I assume that you're getting paid a flat advance and then this is a project that's taking your full-time labor for many years, possibly indefinite number of years. How do you manage something like that? And was that part of your calculus about how long you could follow this story? This story took possession of me in a way that nothing ever has. And once I was in, I was in, but I didn't know what I was in for. <laughs> I didn't. I had no idea that I would spend nearly a decade of my life doing this. I'd like to think that had I known that at the very beginning, I would have made the exact same decisions, but it would have been daunting. I think I imagined it to be several years, and I could not have done this project without 
the incredible support of institutions that have been responsible for making these kinds of books happen. New America, Emerson Collective, Russell Sage Foundation. I also got this amazing grant through Columbia University Population uh, Research Center. This is an amazing group of uh, researchers connected to the School of Social Work. And also Whiting. I got a grant for writing. I mean, I can name others. I did residencies at McDowell and Yotto and Logan Nonfiction. So those are the major players. That's a, that's a long list. You've done them all. I couldn't have done the book without them. The book would not have survived without that. And personal loans and other things. Just I, I couldn't do this book and do anything else. It just took over my life. And somehow I made it to the finish line. <laughs> but I owe the greatest gratitude to Dasani and her family for staying the path with me. And while I could not, wouldn't discuss this with them in the process of reporting, because I thought it was unethical to bring up compensation. Once the book was done, I did tell them that if it should generate any proceeds, I will share, of course, in the proceeds meaningfully with them. And I've also directed readers to a trust that was set up for the family called Invisible Child Family Trust, which is on my website and is another way to support Dasani and her siblings' education. I thought it was really important for them to feel that they could gain from this in some way, but I didn't want to approach that subject with them until it was done because during the process of reporting, it was very important to me to feel that they were always engaged as a choice that they had made, that they were doing this because they felt that they wanted to do it, not because they needed to for out of some financial motive or something. So this was complicated, but it was, I think it worked out in a way that felt right to everyone. What's it like being done and letting go of this thing that's been almost a decade? And uh, what do you want to do from here? I'm not sure I've let go. (laughs) (laughs) I'm in touch. I was just texting with Dasani an hour ago. I've stayed in their lives and I hope to stay in their lives uh, as long as I'm on this planet. I just feel very grateful. You know, I see this book as an act of witness more than anything. That's the act that represents my role or whatever. When it comes to them, I see it as an act of trust and a real show of vulnerability that it was not something that would was easy for them to do, especially when so much of what the book shows and I think what their story is about is survival and survival entails the opposite of being vulnerable. It's, it's about you know getting through things and keeping your guard up. And so for them to let me in to the extent that they did was extraordinary. I feel that this is the kind of work I want to keep doing. I can't imagine doing anything else. But what exactly I'm doing next, I'm not going to say. (laughs) (laughs) Not just yet. (laughs) I'll ask one last question, which is, you know, you described yourself as someone who always wanted to do this kind of work, but felt like you had to build up to it in your own career. 
what advice would you have for a young person who sees themselves doing really immersive reporting, but maybe is not ready to dedicate eight years to one story? What are the building blocks that you felt like were useful in moving towards that goal? I would never have been ready to do this book had I not had those building blocks that came before it. But there is no clear way into this kind of work. No one's going to invite you in. You have to make it happen. And I think my biggest piece of advice is to just do it. Find ways to do it on the side of your job or sort of to complement your job in your own hours. And of course, I did this as as a single person in my early years of my career and um, without children and working around the clock to fight my way into this space because it's a very difficult kind of work and it's the kind of thing you have to do again and again and again until you get to a place where you feel more confident, your editors feel more confident in your ability to do it. And so before this book came many, many deep dives in different forms and series and magazine pieces and all of those were leaps of faith, but none of them would have happened had I not in the earliest days just decided I was going to do it. And I shudder to think of what some of those early stories <laughs> look like in retrospect, but you got to start somewhere. I think it's also true that I don't see myself as a writer. I see myself as a rewriter. I think people get scared when they start writing and it isn't good. Well, you've got to write bad sentences in order to get to good ones. <laughs> And nobody's stuff is great right off the bat. There are certain things like that, that lead of the Imam series, when I chucked out the old stuff and started with this, that was the, that was the first sentence I wrote and it stayed. So every once in a while that will happen. And I think it's about trusting in the process and forgiving yourself for being flawed, both as a reporter and as a writer and surrounding yourself. Like I was so lucky to do with great mentors early on, like Sam Friedman and Sid Gessler at Columbia J School, and then these editors I was so lucky to have later on, to just to be constantly leaning in the direction of getting better and being open to the humility of not being great in the moment. (laughs) (laughs) And that's just a work in progress. It's a constant work in progress. Well, I really enjoyed the book, and thank you so much for this interview. Thank you, Aaron. I really liked being here. And that was the Long Form Podcast. Thanks very much to my guest, Andrea Elliott. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Thanks to the editor of this episode, Gabriella Saldivia. Thanks to our intern, Susan Peterson. Thanks to everyone over at Vox Media. If you enjoy the show... Maybe rate or review it or whatever people are doing. We appreciate it. We'll have a new episode next week. An epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip-off and everyone's already on their feet. This is gonna be good. 
That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply.